0: Yes, hello, and welcome to another episode of Bio2040, where we interview thought leaders in biomedical research, trying to understand what the biggest bottlenecks and the biggest opportunities are. And today, I'm very excited to have on the show Sarah Constantin, who's a mathematician turned data scientist for biology and drug discovery. And uh, she's worked uh, using machine learning to discover drugs uh, at, at a very interesting startup, and uh, called Recursion. And, and now she's in the process of uh, writing a book on what is wrong with cancer research. So I'm very excited to have you on the show, Sarah. Welcome.
1: Much. Good to be here.
0: Thank you, uh, Sarah. Why don't you tell uh, our listeners a little bit? Introduce yourself. How you uh, you know went from uh, Studying math and in going from math into biology and and, and how that works and 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 maybe talk a bit about the the, uh, the 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 interesting job you had at Recursion.
1: So I'm trained as a mathematician. Um, I went for my PhD in math, um, but I've always been sort of interested in biological questions, and even more so after my mom passed away of cancer, concerned with the problems of disease in our world. Um, so. Um, I was recently working at a uh, startup called Recursion Pharmaceuticals, which has a really interesting approach to drug discovery um, in that it makes it a machine learning problem and in particular an image problem. Uh, It turns out if you take pictures of cells, that captures a lot of information about their function, literally just microscopic um, stained images. Um, You can distinguish different types of cells through image recognition and classification uh, about as well or better as you can with um, uh, expression data, um, which is one of the ways that people characterize the different kinds of functions of sick versus healthy cells, different types of cells, and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we would do is we would cultures themselves. Um, we would simulate a disease, usually a rare genetic disease in them, by knocking down the gene that is defective in the disease, um, and then we would um, test different drugs on them to see if they can make the sick cells look visually like healthy cells again, um, and it's kind of a miracle that this works. Uh, you're just looking at them, but then later, we go, when we go and confirm, do they also function like healthy cells, and then if you try this drug in a mouse model of the disease, does it make the mouse behave like a healthy mouse? Um, there's actually a fair amount of ability here. Um, so it's a type of a phenotypic screen, uh, which is the, where most new drugs come from these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't need to know how it works. Um, we can even look at, we can um, look across all kinds of molecular entities without um, having a prior expectation that they will work, just seeing, oh, it seems to be working. Mm-hmm. Um, and that way you're cutting out one of those middle steps of Every time you make an assumption, you, could, you can lose probability of being right. Um, so the fewer assumptions we can make, the safer we are. And going straight to the results is one way that recursion tries to make sure our yield is bigger. Um, the other thing they do is much more automation than you'll see in a conventional pharma lab. Um, we, we, we were going through more rounds of cell culture by orders of magnitude. Uh, than is typical in this industry, mm. uh, which is possible by having a modern engineering company. Mm. Uh, the kinds of tight feedback loops are used to in the tech industry, mm. except applied to curing rare diseases.
0: Got it. Very cool. So, uh, on, in terms of the uh, process you described at the beginning, uh, you know, high throughput screening has been around for for some time. Uh, so, the, do I get that right that the innovation here? was you would still do this sort of high throughput screening where you're testing it's a little bit of a brute force approach, it sounds like. Uh you're testing lots of different compounds uh, on different kinds of cells. And then the innovation was in in using computer vision uh machine learning algorithms to to recognize, classify uh cells and through that infer that they were being healed or they were not being healed. Does that sound roughly roughly right?
1: Um, compared to, um, compared to running sequencing, uh, analyzing an image is 10 times cheaper. Um, Mm -hmm. compared to running, uh, the more complicated kinds of assays where you're checking for the content of a particular protein or something like that, there's just no comparison at all. So we can do the brute force much more manageably because if you can turn something into bits instead of atoms, suddenly it becomes a lot cheaper.
0: Got it. Got it. And then, uh, once you take that, you still have to, of course, uh, uh, you mentioned something. You still have to go and look at the the toxicity and safety profile. The, the yes. usual steps, but you've sort of uh, uh, the very first step. You've sort of uh, done a lot cheaper at a large uh, at a much larger scale than. than
1: well, the, and many diseases in parallel, um, yeah.
0: which is pretty
1: rare. Um, from what I understand, uh, the conventional paradigm is that you'll have one researcher who's an expert in one disease and believes in one drug and goes. Depth first on that drug, and then when it fails, uh, they have to start all over again with a new person. Um, but we have the iterative checking thing going.
0: Right, right, got it, got it. And it looks like the approach from recursion is working, right? At least judging from the the website where you where you can sort of track the uh, uh, the different stages, different compounds are in. It looks promising. Uh, uh, so, so it looks like that it's not just a hype in this case. You know, I'm hearing a lot of people yeah, AI. True but in this case it actually seems to be generating results right as,
1: a, as of what i've seen they have a couple compounds in imd which is the last stage before clinical trials um, right. and that's about as, as much as you could expect for a company that's not been around for very long um, yeah. so i think i think the model is being proven out
0: great great that's it's really exciting to hear and recursion this is definitely a company that i recommend uh listeners to check out i think it's one of the cooler companies I've uh, uh, come across in my in my in my research. So but very cool. So you were working at Recursion for a while, and then you at some point, uh, uh, you, you told me that you were uh, uh, inspired to uh, research and, and ultimately write a book on uh, what's wrong with cancer research. Tell us a bit more about how you got into that. I'm sure your, your mother's uh, unfortunate passing had some impact, but tell us how you got into saying, hey, I need to dig deeper here, what's what, what happened, and, and uh, uh, yeah, what, what are you finding?
1: So basically, um, the story of uh, the story of, of cancer treatment with drugs really um, begins after World War II, um, when it was discovered entirely by accident that mustard gas, which was a chemical weapon, um, also prevented also destroyed tumors. Um, so nearly the entire chemical warfare service. Um, was immediately transferred into this organization called the National Cancer Institute, which is still around today, but was 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 fairly new back then, uh, and began to develop chemotherapy. And in that, in those days, um, the belief was that cancer would be cured. Um, was that it was a actually uh, conquerable disease? Um, that's what the that's that's what it says on the, on the wall of slow catering um, is, uh, is uh, that they, they talk about the conquest of cancer mm. and today the common belief is that that's not possible um, because cancer is diverse mm. um, and accordingly uh, and it is diverse there are a lot of different kinds of cancer they're genetically different they respond to different drugs um, and we've built drugs to be very precise and, and to stop the growth of different t- types of cancer uh, in recent years uh, the the um, the so-called targeted drugs. Um, the trouble is that targeted drugs don't really work that well. Um, the, of the top-selling um, cancer drugs today, most of them don't actually extend life um, more than five months, and many of them don't extend life at all. And these are very expensive drugs, and these are the triumphs of the pharmaceutical industry. And they're not if you look at the details, they're not really working, and we're not actually treating cancer better over time. We're preventing it better. Um, fewer people are dying of cancer than there were ten years ago, but most of that is because of the decline in smoking. Um, but we are—we're not actually currently treating cancer better, uh, in part because this targeted drug model, slow the growth of a particular type of cancer, um, is it seems not very effective. Hmm. Um, cancer has there. There, there was a. Seminal paper in the '90s called the hallmarks of cancer it's still um, informs how people understand cancer today. And there are um, at least six different ways that a cell transforms from healthy to cancerous, and they don't happen have to happen in any particular order. Growth is only one of them. Uh, if you slow the growth of the cancer, you can all you can you can the cancer can route around that um, by new blood vessels, or by evading the immune system, um, and so on. Um, and if you're not actually killing that um, you, you aren't really hitting, hitting it on all fronts. Mm-hmm. Um, so, basically, we haven't had great results, and part of it is because we've had only this very narrow type of drug being developed um, by a small number of companies um and there are there's a whole universe of different types of drugs and different types of approaches to, to treating cancer um that really might be more promising um for example most cancers majority of cancers um have very very high um energy consumption needs they consume a lot of sugar um mm-hmm. they, um They use glycolysis instead of cellular respiration, which is less efficient, which means they consume a lot of sugar. Um, So drugs that interfere with their energy supply will preferentially kill cancer cells over healthy cells. That's a whole Mm. class of drugs that's barely been investigated at all. Mm. Um, Cancer cells, most of them, across many types of cancer, um, are in the default healthy state um monitored by the immune system and mm-hmm. killed by the immune system mm-hmm. um and so improving the immune system's ability to kill cancer um should make a difference in cancer cells across the board independent of their particular genetic signature mm-hmm. um and that's that's the basis for immunotherapy which is one of the most exciting things going on today mm-hmm. um there are the treatments that use the body's own cells, genetically engineered to kill cancers. And they have something like um, 80% remission rates in in, in certain kinds of leukemias, the the CAR-T therapies. Um, So we're seeing really good things there. Um, And it's a completely different paradigm than find out the particular mechanism that makes this particular type of cancer grow um, and slow its growth down. This is empowering the body to kill it all.
0: Mhm so so let's dig okay. in a little here because that that seems interesting so uh you're saying uh the the immunotherapy is is a new way that's that's relatively recent and, and that that we're, yes. we're we're trying to uh and I you know I'm just being a layperson here we're trying to essentially help the immune system get better at, at monitoring and, and then ultimately destroying the cancer cells that I got roughly right can can you describe yes. the process a little bit and and and, and on a molecular basis, just rough a few sentences, how that, how is that working?
1: So, um, CAR-T, um, which is a cellular therapy, uh, the, the treatment is literally your own immune cells, which have been doctored to, um, recognize, um, antigens on the cancer itself. Um, and so now you have a bunch of T cells that are programmed to attack cancer. Mm. Um, and this is a perf- this is a completely general technique. Uh, if you know something, some, some distinguishing marker on the cancer, um, you can program T cells to attack it. Um, it's uh, it's not something. It's it's somewhat more difficult to get to get the, the cells in the blood, literally physically to the inside of a solid tumor. Um, but for for blood cancers, it's been working, and they've been working on ways to get it into solid tumors.
0: Got it, got it. Okay, so, so, you know, I, just taking a step back here, uh, the, the, the problems I've identified, are they, uh, categorized, have you categorized them? And some of them are really, uh, I want to say scientific or technical problems, and some of them are, are maybe more of the social, uh, or more like where we've been putting focus on for, for other reasons than science. Can you, can you categorize it in such a way? And would you say, where, is the, where, is the, where, are, the, where are the biggest bottlenecks, the biggest uh, things that we're getting wrong about cancer? Where do you think we should be going?
1: So I think ultimately um, the root causes of a lot of our problems are more um, more of the social organizational types. Um, we don't have, the reason we don't have enough of a diversity of approaches um, to treating cancer um, is because it's very hard to break into the field as a newcomer. Um, It's very hard to break into the field as a newcomer um, because the cost of clinical trials is so high. Um, And um, the cost of bringing a drug to market is so high um, because we essentially are dealing with a situation where we have a near monopoly. We do do not have a lot of drug companies producing drugs. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, up until recently... Um, the, just, um, the biotech funding space was very, was very tightly locked down. There's not a lot of, um, there's, there's, there's not a lot of room for experimentation. Um, you uh, just making comparisons between what it's like raising money for a tech company versus a biology company. Um, it's orders of magnitude off. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, um, we don't have an environment that makes it particularly easy to um, to to go off and try something new. Um, so, I think I think solving that at root, um, people are creative. There's there's certainly no shortage of scientists in the world who have ideas. Um, so, get, getting some of those ideas a chance to see um, further testing. Um, would really make a difference, I think.
0: Mm-hmm. So so uh, what you're saying is there is actually, but uh, because there's only a few really big pharma companies, uh, mm-hmm. these guys are sort of, uh, you know, they have certain ways of doing things and they're sort of not looking at more diversity. So you're really saying diversity is the main issue and diversity is, 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 or lack of diversity is the issue. And we're seeing lack of diversity because we're seeing uh, a concentration of, funding and in in large a few a few players that have sort of very deep pockets and and newcomers really struggling to uh uh get those initial um even get the initial data going because i mean there is you know there is a lot of people in academia working and they are working on things and, and so is it is it um uh, you know there's biotech vcs have you uh, discovered anything there are they sort of uh, what's happening there? Are they are they opening up to new, is it too risky or, or you know, people are unproven or, or tell us a little bit more about how that is, how that is sort of preventing us from having these more diverse. I see
1: an attitude that um, if something is a completely new gr- drug class um, that they can't, uh, they can't take it to anybody because, um, because that's a risk um, because Investing heavily in a drug uh, is always a very expensive proposition and people want to short them. There is a lot of great stuff happening in academia, but usually at an early stage. Mm-hmm. Um, this, um, so you get something that has been done in in vitro and in mice mm-hmm. and that has to go to industry um, or go to a very large um, a foundation or something like that, or they have to apply for a, a very extensive grant um, before they can test it to make sure it's actually safe and effective. Um, and the process of, and, and, um, and, all, and all of those uh, transfers, uh, every time you say, please, can I do this trial? Um, that process is extremely expensive and inefficient and requires a lot of duplication of uh, resources just in informing people um, and transferring data and so on and those are those things are done in not a very modern way, mm-hmm. um, not a very streamlined way. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that was actually easier in the fifties was that all cancer research was done under one roof in one mm-hmm. organization with mm-hmm. a, with a structure borrowed from the military. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, it was it was very centralized in that case, but the communication was extremely efficient. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas today we have a nominally decentralized system, mm-hmm. where the communication parts of the system is extremely inefficient, and so um, getting something new off the ground is actually more difficult than it would have been um, when your boss was when, when you when you when you were when you were literally working for Uncle Sam, mm. um, because you just you have to. You know in the, in the in those days there were no grant a, a grant application was you talk to somebody face to face and you write much less and uh, they had a layman in the loop at all times. That was actually something Mary Lasker, the philanthropist who fa- who basically founded um, modern cancer research funding um, and, and the war on cancer, um, insisted that a layman concerned with the interests of the patient was in the in was making funding decisions at every point in time. and I mm-hmm. think that may actually. Happen idea because it kept things fairly grounded in results. Um, mm-hmm. instead, instead of traditional grants, they did pay for outcome. You hit a milestone that's intelligible to a layman, uh, mm-hmm. and then you get paid, um, which, is, which was disbanded um, after the war on cancer started. And we got a lot of very interesting research, but we didn't have that tight results orientation that uh, gave us uh, the discovery of chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's a
0: loss. So, so this is very interesting now from a sort of a psychological, sociological perspective. Uh, mm-hmm. and I, I think you bring up a really interesting point. I just want to summarize it. You're saying the, uh, essentially when we started cancer research, it was this National Cancer Institute for Cancer Research. And then they, um, everything was one, done under one roof. So, so communication channels were much, much uh, shorter, much more efficient. And this entire <laughs> process that we have now with, uh, grant uh, uh, requests and then grant applications that have to be written as a really long process or so write it. I've you know, read stats, uh, stats where scientists will spend 40% of their time writing grants instead of doing research. So uh, incredibly uh, time consuming. And then somebody has to review these grants and they have to debate and review and and, and come to an agreement. And then somebody gets money and and a lot of people don't get money. And probably on average, it's, you know, they're probably trying to select the right people and probably on average they are. But there might be a lot of the more diverse approaches you mentioned that are not getting uh, funding because they're too out there because the the people reviewing don't like it or don't think it's going to work. Um, and so that is a really interesting point. You think you bring up is, is, is have these, now you have these, these, well, on one hand is great. Anybody, anywhere in the world can start contributing, but until they can get started, there's sort of a lot of administrative uh, work and a lot of convincing of other people that has to be done before you can actually start. And this is, is, is the negative side of it. It really massively slows, uh, slows people down. So, uh, do you have a sense of, of why that, um, change was made uh if and if not and and and, and do you have a recommendation for how uh, or have you seen innovative approaches on how people uh, are tackling that specific issue of, of reducing the amount of administrative work so that researchers can really focus on on research most of the time
1: so um i'm not sure why it was made um i know having uh read a uh uh, memoir of, of, of that time period that this is actually why james watson the guy who discovered dna um left uh, uh heading up the uh the uh the nci um because he he opposed this change um to um a, away from having it all under one roof and to having various cancer centers uh that were decentralized um so i'm not sure why they did it um but um there are lots of reasons why I could see why, why why I could see why it would seem like a plausible idea. Um, there, are, there are certainly researchers all over the country who can contribute, so why not um, why not let all the universities get funding? Um, the trouble is that uh, information is not free to produce or consume; uh, mm-hmm. it takes time to read reports, so you have this kind of co- uh, coordination difficulty. Mm-hmm. Um, what people are working on now to circumvent this, um, so one angle is uh through regulatory reform Mm -hmm. um there are a number of initiatives to fast track um certain kinds of drugs uh for terminally ill people or for rare diseases we took advantage of the rare disease one at uh um at recursion um so um there have been efforts to slim down the fda approval process Mm -hmm. um there's, and then on the private side, there are organizations, uh, I think this was actually uh, the Chan uh, Zuckerberg Foundation's mm-hmm. model, um, where they're trying to bring the administrative stuff in-house to support researchers at universities and at research foundations. Um, so bit, the, the, the pitch being, we're businessmen, we can handle the lawyers, we can handle the, the, uh, the IP, uh, we can handle the marketing in one place, uh, we can handle the tech in one place. Um, and we can support you in doing science and in spinning out companies from that science.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm.
1: so I think, um, I think that's a, that's a plausible model, um, for, uh, for what, um, private foundations and companies can do.
0: Mm-hmm. That's cool. Great. So so lots of uh, it looks like a lot of change can be made on on sort of the um, the way we're organizing uh, ourselves in, in terms of how we're working together uh, and creating uh, just better models for for scientists uh, to work together. Um, very interesting. I, I think it's definitely an area to, to dig deeper, um, you know. Getting, getting almost to the to the close of this I always uh, the question I always like to ask at the end is is uh, you know you, you're reading a lot you're talking to a lot of people what is uh, is there a technology or, or a research or, or a group or something that has you most excited that you think is sort of very interesting that you want to learn more about or you want our listeners to learn more about
1: um so one of the things that uh, I think should get a lot more attention than it has, and I found out about during this process, uh, is the uh, idea of chronotherapy. Um, who give drugs matters, it turns out, um, because cells divide on a daily cycle, on a circadian rhythm. But cancer cells are out of rhythm. Um, so it turns out when you give people chemotherapy at three in the morning instead of at normal hours, uh, it kills more cancer cells and fewer people cells. Wow. Uh, um, so you can give a get a higher targeted dose with fewer of the horrible side effects of chemotherapy. It's being done mostly by one researcher who has decades of experience showing that this is effective um, at one clinic. Um, if you go and ask your doctor, "Hey, can I take my chemotherapy at three in the morning?" Chances yeah. um, are the answer is no. Wow. Um, but I hope that they get into a larger trial or something like that, because um it's a very low tech very low additional risk to the patient yeah' like uh, you're already taking um and um it seems to make a very big difference
0: wow that that's huge i i i, I kind of I, i'm i'm both uh, smiling and crying for for uh, uh, based on what you just said right because it seems such a simple intervention uh yeah. and, and yet it it hasn't uh, further been explored right so uh i'd love to um you know we'll we'll make sure to, to put a link to to that research and in the, the show notes for so people can can go and check that out because that would really be a uh, sim- simple things like that right and i hope i don't know how many more there are of these super low hanging fruits uh but uh but they should be uh, the most explored so i'll uh, yeah thanks for bringing that up uh and yeah i, th- I think uh, you know interesting stuff sarah uh when when can we uh first of all, where can people uh uh find you online and and when can we answer that and then i also wanted to know when when we can uh if if you have uh any date or when we can expect to read your book which which i'm sure uh people will be interested to uh uh read soon
1: okay um so I'm, uh, I, I, I'm, my email is srconstantine, that's s-r-c-o-n-s-t-a-n-t-i-n gmail at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. And I have a uh, blog which is srconstantine, same word, um, that wordpress.com. Cool. Um, and I am, um, I'm hoping to get a publisher in 2018.
0: Great. Um, great. Um, great. So hopefully this POSCA will help a little bit. Uh, all right. uh, thanks a ton for, for, for coming on the show. And, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll be in touch and we'll, uh, see, uh, we'll, we're, we're excited to see, uh, more of your work and, and pointing out, uh, issues and hopefully, uh, we can all help, uh, contribute to, to, to solutions. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks, Sarah.